Welcome to this lecture series. First of all, we want to say thank you to our patrons and sponsors. We are thrilled to be so well supported by them all. Uh, thank you, thank you, and the committee would like to thank you. Thank you, Perry. Thank you. Yay. Yay. Thanks. There is nothing like a day. Good evening. I'm Eleanor Peterkin, and I'm here with Christine Jones. We are co-chairs of the uh, Dames Historic Activities Committee, and we are so thrilled uh, to welcome you tonight. And we would uh, also like to welcome our president, Lee Potter, and members of our board. Uh, it is our honor to put on these lectures. Uh, we will be doing three this fall. Uh, and Luke Nichter is the first uh, presenter. And he will be followed on November 10th by Medill Harvey, collecting inspiration, Edward C. Moore at Tiffany's. And then on January 7th, we'll have a Dame's perennial favorite, uh, Richard Brookheiser, Give Me Liberty, 13 Key Documents. Uh, tonight, we are here to talk about uh, The Last Brahmin. And, uh, Okay, but before we start, hold on one second. We've got a few housekeeping details we're going to throw in here for you. One, uh, we have made time to have a question and answer period right after the end of the lecture. So if you will note on your screens, there's a Q&A button somewhere along, depending on what machine you have along the edges. And you can at any time go into that Q&A and write a question, which will come up to us at the end and we'll cover as many of them as we possibly can at the end. Uh, the second thing is to thank Mr. Nichter who has made available to all of the participants his book at a substantial 25% discount through Yale Press. And so we thank him for that. Uh, you, should <clears throat> you should have gotten that information on the link you got sent to come into this meeting, but it is also on your chat in here uh, as well. So thank you, and we're delighted to see all of you. Um, it is my pleasure uh, to introduce Luke Nichter. He is professor of history at Texas A&M. He co-edited with Douglas Brinkley, the New York Times bestseller, The Nixon Tapes. Uh, he is the founding executive of C-SPAN's American History TV. Uh, he was awarded the National Endowment for Humanities for Public Sector from 2017 to 2018. And his next book is The Making of the President, 1964. Uh, we are so delighted. I can, I want to share with you my enthusiasm for this book. I spent the morning reading it and I was just delighted. Uh, Mr. Nitter is a scholar, he's a historian, and he couldn't be more timely with the elections going on. And he's picked a fabulous topic uh, to share with all of you today. Mr. Nicker. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, I'm also grateful to you, uh, the National Society of Colonial Dames in the state of New York, not just for hosting this event, uh, but also for your own role in preserving our nation's culture and history. I'd like to tell you what I hope to accomplish with this time together. I sure, we, I sure wish we were together in your clubhouse, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get a chance to do that sometime soon. So this is a, a second uh, option here. Um, you know, it's always hard to guess at a book talk, you know, how many in an audience have had a chance to read some portion of the book, especially since, you know, we've had nothing at all on our minds in this last month uh, since its pub date. Uh, so I think the most engaging thing I, I, I think I can do here is talk a little about what I learned along the way uh, about Lodge, about writing and research, the process of discovery, uh, and the challenges uh, associated with addressing a half century old myth, which is at, kind of at the heart of this whole uh, research project. That way, when you do have the chance to read the book, uh, these points might have greater meaning. Uh, at the end, as mentioned, I'd be happy to answer some questions. And uh, if, you don't, if you'd like to ask a question and you don't get a chance to, or perhaps you're, you're shy, uh, just send me an email. I'm easy to look up, and I always enjoy hearing from readers and the new ideas that are often stimulated in those uh, discussions. 
Well, where I start here is, uh, you know, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. Uh, is the most famous person you've never heard of. That's, that's how I, what I say to my students uh, about the man who's been largely forgotten since his death about 35 years ago. Uh, I, I don't know when, when I first heard the name Henry Cabot Lodge, you know, either in high school or, or in college. Uh, however, I remember my reaction. Uh, he was a person with a famous sounding name uh, that I couldn't place. You know, was he the one uh, who was Wil Woodrow Wilson's nemesis? You know, and if so, how old could he have been when he ran with Richard Nixon in 1960 on his presidential ticket? Lodge did look older then, more like the grandfatherly Eisenhower, you know, than the youthful Nixon in 60. But for this kid who grew up in the Midwest, Lodge had one of those names that you knew was important, but you didn't know why. Uh, for many, the misunderstanding about Lodge is compounded by the fact that Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. was named not for his father, who died when Cabot, as he was known, was young, but for his grandfather. In addition, there are so many Cabots and Lodges, especially in the Northeast, and family traditions are such that uh, the name, certain names like Henry repeat throughout multiple generations of the family tree. This is a book I never planned to write. You know, as a writer, uh, there are things you spend a lot of time on and you never quite gain traction. And then there are things that you have no plan to write that come together with a momentum of their own. This book was definitely in the, the latter category. In early 2015, the executive editor of Yale University Press, William Frucht, uh, who would, would become my editor, called to ask what I know about Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. I tried to think of some erudite answer, but the best I could do was the truth, not much. Uh, from past work, I knew that Lodge was a figure whose name appeared often on the White House tapes of Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, um, with covering the three, making him almost kind of a unique figure in that sense. But still, Lodge was an enigma, even though I could hear his voice and hear what he spoke about. Then Bill asked me uh, what the big book on Lodge was, and I said I didn't think there was one. Uh, so Bill was intrigued after editing a book by Erwin Gelman on Richard Nixon's vice presidency, in which Lodge's name kept coming up. So he asked whether I'd like to propose a biography. At the time I, at the time I did, signing a contract uh, in the spring of 2015, I knew that Lodge had a substantial volume of personal papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society, and that the research would probably necessitate trips to every presidential library from Herbert Hoover through Ronald Reagan. In a, but I really didn't know what I was getting into uh, and not even including probably a size a lengthy trip to Vietnam and other archives. I'm, I'm the kind of researcher who is, is obsessive about research. You know, if you're gonna write about when Lodge met Eisenhower during the war in the Mediterranean theater, you've got to go to Algier to, the, to now at the top of the hill uh, to the Hotel, hotel St. George and uh, really at the site where they, where they met and where the Southern invasion of Europe was planned and looked down on the Cosba on the sea uh, in order to properly scene set, you know, that part of the book. You know, research is an obsession that can be especially problematic when writing about someone like Lodge with such a long career that took him to so many parts of the world. I was able to retrace many of Lodge's steps around the world with the exception of some more fragile places in Central Asia. There are limits after all to what even the most forgiving spouse will permit. Now here at the end of the other end of the journey, you know, whether one comes away from this first biography of Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. admiring him more or less, the real purpose is to show that Lodge was much more than meets the eye and to restore him to his rightful place in history that he really always occupied. The sheer number of notable events with which Lodge was associated, yet his role has been hidden, makes him a cross, I would say, between a kind of Where's Waldo or a Forrest Gump, or even at times a sort of James Bond Cold War figure. The events themselves are often recognizable, but we didn't know Lodge's role in them. And sometimes seeing those events through his eyes changes our understanding of the events themselves. A member of the greatest generation crossed with the best and the brightest, Lodge's values uh, and sacrifice of self for bigger causes are traits in short supply uh, that our society needs again today. These days, we're all probably cynics when it comes to politics. So it's hard to believe that someone like Lodge ever existed while some politicians give lip service to serving the greater good, most famously stated in John F. Kennedy's admonition, ask not what you can do, uh, ask, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, Lodge lived it. His record of bipartisan public service combined with his dramatic conversion from isolationism to internationalism made him a unique figure, not just for his time, but I would argue nearly in American history. Lodge was the last true Boston Brahmin 
to be active in public life. Yet his career harks back to a time when compromise was an art and comedy a virtue instead of the political liabilities they have become. And I'll, I will uh, try to share my screen here now and show you a few photos. First, I'll start with the, uh, the, the cover of the book, as you saw um, uh, at, at the, in the intro. Um, you know, it was difficult finding a photo for the cover of the book that captured someone with so many different phases of his life and career. State legislator, a journalist by training even before them, um, a leap all the way up to the U.S. Senate, uh, and then ultimately uh, running Eisenhower's campaign, eight years as U.N. ambassador in New York, and then a series of other ambassadorial posts, including Vietnam, West Germany and Bonn, uh, and, uh, and the Vatican, in addition to serving at multiple times as ambassador at large during the 1960s. And in retirement, he was, he was active right up until the 1980s. So really, you know, when you add it up, you're talking about a, a, about a 50 year public career uh, in very different phases of a career. And I, it would, often I would find one photo that would capture one element of him, uh, senator or a diplomat or a family man or um, a Boston Brahmin perhaps. Um, but never, never a photo that would capture, capture uh, really his entirety. And so what I'd like to show you are a few more photos uh, that are also those featured in the book. And I think they give you a flavor uh, when you take them together of kind of you know, really who Lodge was. This next photo of, that I'll advance here too, this, this next photo uh, with Lyndon Johnson captures the behind the scenes role that Lodge played advising five consecutive presidents from Dwight Eisenhower through Gerald Ford, in addition to other presidents that Lodge knew personally, beginning as a young boy, Teddy Roosevelt. You know, here in the photo on the South Lawn, Johnson and Lodge must have escaped the Oval Office undetected, continuing their conversation outside away, uh, away from Johnson's taping system. Once the press figured out they were on the loose, they quickly worked to catch up. It's a theme throughout Lodge's career, a private conversation with the president and keeping colleagues and especially the press off guard about his movements. In this next photo is also something that I've seen more than once. Here at a White House reception for the Lodge family in 1966, uh, LBJ pulls Lodge off to the side for what appears to be a brief but serious conversation. And in fact, the, uh, the LBJ era photos are particularly good of Lodge because he was in the United States for much of that decade as opposed to other parts of his career being overseas, there weren't as many chances to get photos of him, especially in Washington or in the White House. Uh, this, this event here uh, pictured was notable for another reason. It was attended by virtually the entire cabinet and you can see a number of familiar faces in the crowd, including Lodge's son, George, uh, kind of in the background of the photo, just to the right of Johnson's head, the back of his head. And then on the right-hand side of the photo from left to right, you can see Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and Vice, Vice President Hubert Humphrey uh, and others from the White House, from the administration and from the Lodge family. This reception was followed by a formal dinner for the Lodge family in the White House, arguably the greatest honor uh, they were ever paid by a sitting president. We'll advance to the, to the next one here. Uh, this one is also something I see a lot in photos over the various administrations uh, that Lodge had a role in. For a period of nearly 20 years, Lodge was often in the room when important decisions were made. While not always in the cabinet, he consistently operated at that level, or even as a second, second, second uh, secretary of state, such as when he served as UN ambassador, but uh, for both terms of the Eisenhower administration, with no one exceeding his length of service in that role before or since, or taking the, perhaps taking the toughest job in the foreign service on two occasions in Vietnam for Kennedy and Johnson. Having the actual title was something Lodge rarely sought. And here in this photo, again, with McNamara, Ruskin, Johnson, when Lodge was asked his opinion, uh, often others in the room took note. Rather than learn what Henry Cabot Lodge stood, Jr. stood for or the lessons of his life, instead, we largely forgot him as we did the other members of the best and the brightest for their role in Vietnam, a byproduct of internationalist zeal. For example, I'd ask you, what's the big book on Dean Rusk? You know, there isn't one. Or Robert McNamara, or the Bundys, Bill and McGeorge, or Walt Rostow, there, there aren't any. Uh, but unlike the others, the bulk of Lodge's 50-year public life had to do with subjects other than Vietnam. In the post-war era, in terms of foreign policy influence and sheer versatility, 
I put Lodge up there with George Marshall, Henry Kissinger, and James Baker, each of their own era. But unlike the rest, Lodge gave some of his best years of public service in democratic administrations. Nowadays, it's almost impossible to believe that people like Lodge not just willingly served for Democrats like John F. Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson, but considered it a duty to do so. Or that presidents like Franklin D. Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower each appointed members of the opposite party to the Supreme Court. We should remember Lodge for taking part in and expanding the American adventure in Vietnam, but his half-century public life was much more than that. Born in 1982, an entire generation of Americans has now been born and come of age since his death in 1985 that has not learned about him or his lessons or the lessons of his life, except perhaps at most a brief mention in relation to Vietnam. Lodge being old fashioned did himself no great service by never properly explaining his side of controversial events or writing a tell all memoir. He naturally shunned self-promotion, his son George Cabot Lodge told me when I asked why his father left so many important subjects unaddressed. Never tell them how you did it, Lodge once said when asked whether he planned to write a comprehensive history of his career. I do not see myself doing a book because if it's interesting, it means I've revealed things which I should not reveal. And if I don't reveal them, then the book will be dull. Lodge wrote to Evan Thomas II at one point, one of eight editors interested in publishing his memoir. Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. was a household name in an era of big personalities and big ideas that stood out against the mundane and the mediocre. There is something appealing once again about public officials who seek opportunities to serve for a primary reason other than financial gain. On three occasions, Lodge gave up his political career to serve the greater good. First, when he resigned from the Senate to serve in World War II. Second, when he sacrificed his Senate seat to manage Eisenhower's campaign for the presidency in 1952. And third, when he willingly accepted an appointment from a democratic president to the most challenging diplomatic post in the world, Vietnam. Yet no one, even those who benefited from Lodge's sacrifices, was there to help him in 1964 when he had a genuine chance for the presidency following his surprise win in the New Hampshire primary, even though his success would have helped those who withheld their support. The events of Lodge's life in that first ambassadorial tour in Saigon from 1963 to 1964 represent one of the greatest turning points in not just what would become known as the Vietnam War, but the history of the entire Cold War. This is the subject I would like to turn to and focus on for the remainder of my time with you. Uh, it's often the subject I get asked about the most because it might be the only thing you know, people ever have ever heard about Lodge. Lodge's role in Vietnam has been the subject of a half century controversy and I would say myth. Due to President Kennedy's assassination, histories of the administration were written unusually quickly, even though there were very few declassified records available to offer a fuller view. The publication of the Pentagon Papers beginning in 1971, further set in stone the conventional wisdom of Lodge in Vietnam, in particular his role in the November 1st coup in 1963 that toppled South Vietnamese President Ngo Dinh Diem, which became the point of no return for full-blown American involvement in the Vietnam War. Beginning in the 1960s, Lodge was blamed by those close to President Kennedy, including Bobby Kennedy, for exceeding his authority in Saigon, not responding to US government instructions and doing who knows what with the coup plotting generals. Something about the accusations never seemed quite right to me, especially with so many records that have remained restricted until very recently. Even to this day, there are many records at the Kennedy Library that are still classified now more than a half century later. Yet it is very difficult to overturn the conventional wisdom of such a firmly established version of events. But I'll say of the 53 people I interviewed, corresponded with or communicated with in some form for the book, including Lodge family members and virtually every former associate of his, one in particular early on gave me a suggestion that not only did I try to carry out, but resulted in the particular book that you see. Rufus Phillips, who wrote a good book about Vietnam called Why Vietnam Matters, was a JFK era official, he's still alive, uh, for the US Agency for International Development who was serving in Vietnam at the time of Lodge's first appointment as ambassador in August, 1963. Phillips is the last living American to have known President Ngo Dinh Diem personally. And I think he considered it kind of a personal failure when the US withdrew its support from a close American ally and his friend. Over breakfast at a diner in Arlington, Virginia at the beginning of my research, 
Rufus encouraged me to try to study the origins of Lodge's appointment to Vietnam. The most important contribution you could make, he said, was to determine Kennedy's instructions to Lodge regarding the coup that toppled South Vietnamese President Ngo Dinh Diem on November 1st, 1963. Phillips said that Lodge in Saigon always said that Kennedy authorized the coup, but no evidence for this allegation ever surfaced. But it hardly seemed possible that I could find something new that adds to our understanding of an event that's been written about so many times. The most famous account uh, being those featured in the Pentagon Papers, in addition to the mid-1970s published volumes of the Church Committee. The conventional wisdom today is that the coup, which occurred with some degree of CIA support, was a key turning point in terms of American military involvement in Vietnam. Resulting in the overthrow and assassination of Diem, the event, uh, the event uh, that was supposed to increase stability in Saigon by removing a widely unpopular leader instead destabilized Vietnam. As Colin Powell said about Iraq, when you break it, you buy it. And the coup was arguably when the US bought it in 1963. Three weeks later, Kennedy himself was killed. And in fewer than 18 months, the first US Marines were deployed to the beaches of Da Nang in March of 1965. But having spent so long studying the Nixon White House tapes, I wondered whether the answer might be in the Kennedy tapes. Two of Lodge's meetings uh, with, with Kennedy occurred after the initiation of the Kennedy taping system in the summer of 1962 and in a location where the taping system functioned in June and August of 1963 in the Oval Office. I've seen a number of strange things uh, with respect to the Nixon tapes, which, is grabbed, which have caught so much uh, public eye over the years. So what I hoped with the Kennedy tapes was to find maybe evidence of a tape that once existed, a tape that remained classified that I could request a review of, or anything at all that just might lead me to the next clue. Uh, what Rufus Phillips suggested to determine what Kennedy and Lodge might've discussed about the coup seemed like an impossible task. Of course, Kennedy did not live to write about it and Lodge generally did not talk about it with only a few exceptions where he was disciplined enough to stick to a very general account of their conversations. I'll go back to sharing my screen here in just a minute. So I've got to skip over some details, uh, but the first thing I did was try to dig into some records about the provenance of the Kennedy tapes specifically, the deed of gift, where they were stored over, over time, how they were processed, any irregularities in the chain of custody, and when the existence of the Kennedy taping system first became public, which is what you see here in a 1982 front page story in the Washington Post, authored by a journalist who had already become famous for writing about presidential tapes, Bob Woodward. While word about the Kennedy tapes had begun to spread in the 1970s, it was Woodward's piece here that really gave front page attention for the first time to the Kennedy tapes. Besides the big headline, in the inside pages of the newspaper that day were extensive logs published of dates recorded, subjects discussed, and people Kennedy met with. Uh, not transcripts, those the tapes themselves were not available, you couldn't listen to them, but kind of general logs of an outline of the, how the system itself functioned. And uh, the first strike against me was, was this, in, in, in terms of my, my task that Rufus Phillips gave me, because the dates listed skip right over Lodge's farewell meeting uh, with Kennedy on August 15th, 1963. And on the, on the right-hand side, uh, on, uh, titled Dick DeBelt Logs, I appended a portion of what you see on the, on the inside pages of the paper that day, and in terms of the, the list of the dates recorded, and it skips right over from August 13th to August 17th, 1963. And so it skips right over the, the key meeting in question in August 15th. In other words, uh, according to the official records by the National Archives, no recording was made of, of the meeting between Kennedy and Lodge that I was looking for. But I wasn't ready to give up yet. And I'll talk about this letter for just a moment and then uh, you don't need to read the whole thing and I'll, I'll zero in on the final paragraph and, and read that part. It can be a little difficult to read. But what I'd like to say about this slide, you know, many writers well known, better known than me, and more than a few of famous Vietnam era journalists have been over the same terrain before. Uh, as I said, not to mention the Pentagon Papers and the Church Committee, which had a statutory ability to see everything. Uh, that seemed like a good starting point to me, to see the extent to which those who came before me looked into this already and what they might have discovered. If they lost the scent of, or if the trail went cold at some point, that would be a good place for me to pick up the search now that more records are available, you know, these years later. 
For example, I went through David Halberstam's papers, Neil Sheehan's, you know, two of the original three American journalists uh, in Vietnam, uh, two of the only three in the early 60s who were there full time, uh, and others, you know, which seemed like the most obvious places to look. People who knew the issues, people who uh, were active at the time, uh, people who remember and might have recorded uh, recollection and interviewed all the principals. Some of these, uh, some of this correspondence still remains in private hands, in part because a few people are still alive from that era. Uh, I was able to get access to some of Arthur Daman's correspondence, journalist and someone with very long experience in Vietnam from his estate. And that's an example you see here. So I found this letter to be particularly interesting and responsive to my search from one Kennedy scholar to another, from Arthur Daman to Robert Dalek. Uh, Dalek, of course, uh, has written just about as much about Kennedy as anybody else, including the, the two uh, big volumes on, on the Kennedy's life and presidency, which are still very popular today and now about 20 years old. Uh, so Dahman and Dalek, you know, each wrote extensively about Kennedy in Vietnam and spent even longer trying to make sense of it all. The last, but it's the last paragraph of this letter that really caught my eye, so I'll enlarge it on the next slide. This paragraph and the letter as a whole appear to be strike two in my search. You know, I, I'd like to read this final paragraph. Again, this is a letter from Dahman to Dalek dated August 1st, 2003. I'm grateful to you for confirming in your letter that there appears to be no written record of Kennedy's instructions to Lodge. Without knowledge of what Kennedy asked Lodge to do in Saigon, of course, we are at a serious disadvantage. I doubt seriously that it will turn up at the Kennedy Library, although I will keep checking as you wisely suggest. And I'm convinced that Lodge in his effort to cover his tracks after masterminding the overthrow of the legally constituted government of South Vietnam and the murder of President Siem destroyed all copies of his instructions, which, which most assuredly did not instruct him to do these things. And that is why Anne Blair did not find them in Lodge's papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society when she went through them. The paragraph references Anne Blair, an Australian scholar who wrote a book in the mid 1990s called Lodge in Vietnam, one of the few previous works about him about Lodge, although only about a small part of his life. So this letter appeared, seemed to be the second piece of evidence that I found that suggested I was wasting my time by looking for something where so many others had already searched and came up empty handed. So finally, I thought about whether there were people prior to me who had a statutory reason to know what Kennedy or Lodge uh, might have discussed uh, about a subject as sensitive as uh, the ZM coup uh, before Lodge left for Vietnam. That led me to a variety of people. Uh, one of them was Les Gelb, the general editor of the Pentagon Papers, who still lives in New York, who had some additional clues, but not the type I was looking for. You know, I kept coming back to the church committee, but other than the published volumes that were published by the government printing office in the mid 1970s, even today, not a single page of uh, the records of the church committee have been released to the public. They are currently in the physical custody of the National Archives, but access to them remains restricted by Congress. So then I thought about the State Department's Foreign Relations of the United States series. You know, FRUS, as it's known in shorthand, uh, is the official documentary record of US foreign policy going back to the Lincoln administration. If an important foreign policy event occurs during an administration, it's in there somewhere. Uh, the volumes usually appear about 30 or 40 years uh, after the events they document, once the records in question become declassified, which can take a very long time. The volume dealing with the Kennedy administration, there's an excerpt I put here on this slide, and Vietnam through August 1963 was published in 1991. It had, I found out it had three editors, one of whom was still living, Edward Kiefer. The volume skips right over any substance of Lodge's meetings with Kennedy in June and August of 1963, but it left me a breadcrumb of hope. Uh, editorial note 254 on page 891 of the roughly thousand page volume. I've reproduced editorial note 254 here on the slide and, and added a red box around the line that caught my eye. No record of their discussion has been found. It refers to the Kennedy Lodge meeting on August 15th, 1963, the last time they would speak before Lodge left for Saigon, which is I thought the most obvious time Kennedy would have provided his personal instructions to Lodge about what to do once he got there. I came to learn Ted Kiefer's style over the course of many first volumes he was the general editor of the entire series for a number of years, while the JFK volume in 1991 was one of his very first. You know, I tracked him down, semi-retired and, and working as a consultant in the office of the Secretary of Defense, and he was kind enough to talk to me about it. 
I did not expect him to remember a, a single footnote in a fat volume from nearly 30 years ago, but he did. And I told him I noted the phrase, no record of their discussion has been found, it was not as a, his usual style, and he agreed. Uh, it didn't say there wasn't a record, only that it could not be found. Uh, so then he told me about the unusual process that he and the Fruce editors used to access the Kennedy tapes. Despite their statutory responsibility to produce a complete record of foreign policy, the Fruce team was restricted to tapes only on the Cuban Missile Crisis that were specifically approved by Kennedy National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy. Former JFK Library Archivist Sheldon Stern, you know, arguably the greatest living expert on the provenance of the Kennedy tapes, told me the Bundy review process was a joke because he was old and he could barely hear them. And it's true, many of the Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon White House tapes are very difficult to understand except for uh, a you know, very well-trained ear. Uh, Kiefer told me that he reviewed his notes related to editorial note 254, he still had them, and saw a post-it note to check out tape 104. I was already making regular research trips to Boston, including the JFK Library, which is one of my regular stops. So I got a plane ticket and went up to Boston. This was when the Kennedy Library was starting to digitize its records and put them online. Some things were online already and some things weren't. It's still that way today, although the Kennedy Library is arguably the leader in, in terms of digitization of all the presidential libraries. Lodge's meetings with Kennedy were important enough for the president to have had photos taken, which is one of the first things I found. This first photo here <clears throat> is from the earlier meeting, June 1963, when the consensus is, and there's no transcript, there's no notes or anything that we know of, uh, but the consensus is that during this conversation you see here, Kennedy first asked Lodge to go to Vietnam as US ambassador. Despite what has been written about the Kennedy and Lodge families being enemies, I would call them friendly rivals. They were cut from similar cloths. They played touch football on the weekend. You know, one was old money, you know, one was new, one was a wasp, the other Catholic, but I, I would argue they had more in common than most people realize. And they'd known each other for a long time. Joe Kennedy, uh, Kennedy's father, had even financially supported some of Lodge's earlier political races. This next photo, a few years before, in 1952, when Kennedy and Lodge faced off for the Senate in Massachusetts, when commentators said it was the race to watch around the country. Though at the time, the winner was seen as someone who would have a shot at the presidency eventually. Kennedy, to me, looked so young in this photo, but actually he was the same age as Lodge when Lodge first won a Senate seat in 1936. Kennedy in 36, then an undergraduate at Harvard, never imagined he would face off one day against Lodge for the Senate in 1952, here depicted, let alone defeat him. And then finally, you know, photos were also taken of Lodge's August 15th meeting with Kennedy, the primary subject of my search and discussion here. You know, when I first saw this photo, you know, the historian in me was dying to know what could be printed on the piece of paper on the table in front of President Kennedy or in the envelope that's open. You know, neither of which have ever, surfaced, have ever surfaced in the archives, as far as I know. These photos captured an unusual color for the time. Uh, let me feel so close to the conversation, like a fly on the wall, yet just out of earshot. The fact is, I knew from the Nixon tapes that amb ambassadorial fare farewells are, are rarely substantive. It's usually maybe 15 minutes, a handshake, and a photograph. No president can, can ever possibly know enough about all parts of the world to say something substantive to an ambassador preparing to leave for that country. So I did what few people ever do, start to listen to hours and hours of Kennedy tapes. I had no reason to believe a tape of Lodge existed. There was no, again, to review here, no log published in the Washington Post among the official records. No book had ever mentioned such a tape. No scholar believed one existed and neither the church committee nor the Pentagon papers mentioned it. All I had to go on was uh, was the clue that Ted Kiefer gave me, tape 104. So I started at the beginning of 1963. That way I could get months and months of context prior to Lodge's appointment and my and departure uh, depicted here in August. I listened carefully to probably 100 hours and took notes while listening. I assigned grad students to follow up on certain clues. And I heard a lot of really interesting things that probably could be a book on their own. Uh, as I inched toward the summer of 1963, what I hoped to find and thought I would find were conversations about Lodge, uh, the, perhaps the, the deliberative process to appoint him, uh, the summer months when Vietnam increasingly took more of President Kennedy's personal time, and ultimately Lodge's departure in mid-August, you know, seen here uh, in this photo. Finally, I got the tape 104, which is the one that Ted Kiefer said to look into. 
you know, buried on a tape. You know, these tapes often include conversations over a period of days and weeks with different people on different subjects. They just usually filled one tape before going on to the next one. So buried on a tape that included conversations recorded, uh, as I say, at other times and other subjects, uh, in the middle, I, re I recognized Lodge's voice. And I was surprised, you know, I knew what it sounded like. Um, his accent is not a typical Boston accent like Kennedy or relevant for me in other work, Chuck Colson. I knew Lodge's accent was different, you know, more like FDR's, a kind of patrician accent. I was stunned when I heard it. Um, I asked the JFK Library archivist whether anyone had ever transcribed the tape or whether a transcript had ever been published anywhere. Uh, of course, they couldn't claim with certainty, but they did not think so. So I spent several months listening to the conversation, easily more than 100 times. Because uh, the thing about audio is you can listen to it over and over and think you've really got the transcript perfectly, but then you take a break, you take the headphones off, and you go play with your, your kids or you go do some gardening outside. And doing something else has the effect of sort of clearing your short-term memory. And then when you come back to it, that 101st time you listen to it, one little word will sound sometimes a little different. And that one little word can change the meaning of an entire passage. So interpreting audio can take a very long time. So as my transcript got better, I shared it with no one. Uh, you know, I think whereas many researchers would have been excited, I was terrified. Uh, I did the opposite of what I should have done. Uh, I think a better self-promoter would have fired off 850 words to the first place that would publish an op-ed. You know, what I should have done is, is really claimed it as my own and, and planted my flag. Instead, I took nearly four years to study this tape uh, from 2016 to 2020, hoping no one would scoop me in the meantime. I knew from working on the Nixon tapes for many years that tapes can give a listener a false sense of security, perhaps because we, we believe something more because we heard it ourselves. Uh, but instead, they must be interpreted, corroborated, triangulated, and put in their proper context. Even with tapes, the writing of history remains a collaborative process. As my understanding of its content matured, uh, although there are still mysteries I cannot answer about the tape and, and the discussions on it, I shared it with a very small group. Uh, I felt as though it was sort of like preserving a trade secret. And if you want to protect the exact recipe of Coca-Cola, you know, either you tell everyone or you tell no one. Uh, so I decided I could not share it with any journalist friends and, and certainly fellow historians could not be trusted. So instead I shared it, I shared it and gained insights from those who were close to the participants uh, that you see in the, in the, in the photograph here. Uh, Lodge's son, George Cabot Lodge, uh, Henry Kissinger, and uh, three and four, the last two living Kennedy officials who were senior enough to know the subject well. Uh, Rufus Phillips, as uh, introduced earlier, and also Thomas Hughes, the Kennedy State Department Director for Intelligence and Research. You can read more about it in the book, including excerpts from the tape and question, because not only do I tell, I tell the story better there where I have more space and time, but I also discuss a number of interesting secrets from the archives that I found that, that change our understanding of a number of events, including Vietnam. However, I'd like to kind of conclude with this part by saying uh, my, my bottom line interpretation of this tape of August 15th, 1963, you know, what does it say? You know, this recording of Lodge's farewell meeting with Kennedy in the Oval Office. You know, my take on this tape that I found uh, as well as its mysterious provenance, which of course goes beyond the daunting task of writing a biography of Lodge and his 50 year career, was that it was JFK's green light to contact the generals and look into the possibility of a coup. You know, JFK was willing to accept a coup under certain conditions. And what this tape is, is the first evidence to surface that demonstrates JFK's knowledge and involvement in discussion of a possible coup at an early date, prior even to Lodge's departure for Saigon. I do not argue in the book that it was an order, and I clearly say that it was Eisenhower and not Kennedy who made regime change a part of US foreign policy in the 1950s. I'm not sure another president uh, uh, also, uh, I'm not sure another president in JFK's situation would have come to a dramatically different policy outcome. My second conclusion from the tape, you know, rather than killing ZM, as Lodge has been accused of, and it remains the conventional wisdom today, or at least having a, a serious role in his death, I document based on the available evidence, which means I have to keep my mind open to the possibility that additional evidence will become available one day that could change my mind, that Lodge tried to save Ziem by offering to give him asylum in the US Embassy and provide for his safe passage out of the country. I reveal not one, but a second mysterious phone call that Lodge had with Ziem on November 2nd, the morning after the coup, shortly before Ziem was apprehended and murdered. 
In other words, Lodge and other American officials, including the CIA, were not involved in Diem's murder, although they had good reason to believe the Vietnamese generals running the coup planned to dispose of Diem somehow. So what does this mean? You know, I, I believe these findings change the history of how we got, how the U.S. got involved in the Vietnam War uh, before the first combat troop was ever deployed. Kennedy's assassination, combined with Lodge's reticence to publish a fuller account, not to mention Diem's own assassination, and a country, South Vietnam, that ceased to exist in 1975, has held back our understanding up till now of this critical moment in Cold War history, when we broke and bought Vietnam. It's an important piece of the puzzle, although not the final one, of a revision of the current conventional wisdom that there is not a scintilla of evidence that Kennedy had knowledge of the pre in the pre-coup period of a coup, let alone an assassination, which Lodge warns Kennedy more than once was a strong possibility during their conversation on August 15th in the tape. Kennedy, of course, never spoke about his meeting with Lodge. Uh, Lodge didn't know he was being taped and never was asked by anyone with suspicion to believe anything substantive was discussed on August 15th. And the mysterious tape showed up at the JFK library decades later after it wasn't supposed to exist. When it was declassified in 2009, it merited only the briefest mention in an Associated Press write-up that actually devoted more space to discussing President Obama's foreign policy in Afghanistan than what the tape existed or what it said. Uh, the tape remained hidden in plain sight until I finally took the advice that I'd given to my own students on countless occasions. Go back and check the audio for yourself. Now, one last slide here as I conclude. After the coup, uh, Lodge made plans to return to the US for consultations with Kennedy. Now that would have been a conversation I wish we had a tape of. But instead, while en route, Lodge learned that Kennedy himself was killed just three weeks after the Siam coup. When he arrived in Washington, Lodge was the first American diplomat that President Johnson met with. Here in the photo, along with Rusk, McNamara, and George Ball. It was so soon after Kennedy's death that Johnson was still using the vice president's office in the executive office building. He hadn't yet moved into the White House. And Lodge, instead of huddling with Kennedy, instead, instead paid his final respects at Arlington National Cemetery. And Johnson convinced Lodge to stay in Vietnam. So where does this leave us? In conclusion, Henry Cabot Lodge was an enigma. Uh, who did little to redress such misunderstandings and many other mysteries in the book during his lifetime. Instead, he left his secrets and his papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society with many memoranda to himself, journal or diary entries, and handwritten notes scattered throughout different phases of his 50-year career, much of which occurred around key people and key events. I just happened to be fortunate enough to be the first researcher to utilize them for their full value, uh, which itself about a four-year process. The result is a book that I cannot say entirely removes the mystery behind the man. I did my best with the canvas that I had available. Uh, I had a book contract for 150,000 words, submitted a manuscript of around 283,000 words, and what you see here in the finished book is a compromise of about 200,000 words. That said, uh, certainly new evidence will one day come to light, just as it did for me, that will cause us to reconsider Lodge's era and his values further. What I have written will hardly be the final word, and I am hardly the kind of person to say, you know, this is all we know. In that sense, you know, our understanding of the life and times of Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. with the appearance of the first full biography that tries to restore him to the place in history that he really always occupied is itself a lesson about the essence of history. It's never really over. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. That was wow. Thank you so much. That really, was Luke has given us a historic novel, historic work, as well as really a scholarly approach to a, a topic um, that so many people aren't, uh, are missing facts on. So we really appreciate this. Um, he was the subject of a Wall Street Journal review, uh, really acknowledging his role as a scholar and a historian, and we appreciate that. And I urge you all to read this book. It is very compelling. It's not dry at all. It is very readable. And there are some great uh, anecdotes about the Lodge family that will make you smile. Okay, and then remind you all that if you have any questions that you would like, aha, there goes one in Q&A, but if you have any questions that you would like Mr. Nictor to respond to, please 
put them in the Q&A and um, we will start from there. And I see we have one that just came in here and uh, yeah. don't, don't be shy. I, I teach 18 to 24 year olds, so I've heard it all. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm ready for anything, nothing, no question is uh, out of left field. Um, uh, so our first question here, why didn't Lodge take another attempt at the presidential nomination in 1968? Well, I, 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 don't, I can tell you what he said in his private papers. Um, nowadays, it's customary for uh, the leaders of both parties to be well into their mid seventies. That was not common <laughs> prior to now. Um, in fact, Lodge, after the 1960 race, when he ran as vice president with Nixon, he was 58 on election day in 1960. He wrote, in a, he wrote a, a diary entry after the election. Uh, and of course, this was back when people had a life expectancy in the 60s. And he said something like, uh, and this, I got it close, but maybe not exact. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm too old to run for office again, but not old enough to retire at 58. And so by 68, he would have been about 66. He was born in 1902. And in the cycles of government, we often have eight years of one party, eight years of another party. And that tends to be the cycle, which occasionally, you know, that's not quite how it works. Lodge felt that eight more years after uh, 1960, when he'd be almost 70, he thought that would be, he'd be too old for a high ranking appointment for a cabinet position. And instead he made himself available uh, for a high-ranking position uh, under Kennedy and Johnson, and saw no no problem, you know, serving the other side, uh, the other party, even though that would be very unusual today. So I, I think, as a hunch, um, Lodge felt it was time to give a younger generation a chance. And uh, and and nowadays, uh, as I said, you know, we, we did not typically have politicians that Eisenhower was considered old back then, and whether it be Reagan or anyone, you know, on the ballot this year, uh, considerably older today with longer life expectancies. Um, but a good question. And then um, another question just came in. Could you talk about his Senate run? Well, Lodge, Lodge had three Senate runs. Uh, he had one in 36 when he was 34 years old uh, against Curley, Mayor Curley in Boston. He had one in 42 and he had another one in 46. Uh, so uh, in, in 30, I'll talk about, um, I think probably, um, well, I mean, they're all interesting in some way. In 36, he, he made the leap from the state house all the way up to U.S. Senate. Of course, Lodge had a family name. Um, he, he had a, a famous name, and he, I think he felt a lot of burden on him from a family. I mean, this family, the Cabot Lodge family, had an almost unbroken line uh, of public service that you could, you could connect right back to the Washington administration. I think it was something like six senators, governors, secretary of the Navy, other cabinet members. Um, I mean, and if you go back into the, how they intermarried, you could go all the way back to Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Mayflower. Uh, I mean, this was just about as old a family as you could get and very politically involved. Uh, so I think he felt a great burden on him in 36 to win. Um, he, uh, the, a Lodge family member, either he or his, his grandfather, uh, who he's named for, Henry Cabot Lodge, Woodrow Wilson's nemesis, had held a Senate seat for something like 40, 48 years combined. And so I think he felt he was destined for the Senate. 52, I think is also interesting because it was that photo of Kennedy. And sometimes people say, you know, could if, if, Eisenhower, if, if Lodge had not been distracted by managing Eisenhower's campaign for the presidency, might he have defeated Kennedy? Well, I, I think it would have been a tough race. You know, the Kennedys were very well, well funded. Um, you know, in, in essence, they were like a younger, he was like a younger Lodge. To me, he, he, was, he was good looking, he had good positions, he was a centrist. He was very well funded. I mean, he was going to be a formidable, formidable opponent no matter what. And I think in many ways, the, the Kennedys were smart and they studied the Lodge model. And they used all of Lodge's techniques in campaigning, advertising, collecting information on voters, mailings, uh, and I think, and really refined what Lodge did and, and did it even better than Lodge in 1952. So, you know, all I think this is a, just a, an example, though, that kind of throughout Lodge's life are just all these famous names and presidents and events. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a, a work, it's, it's a biography, but it's also a work of presidential history and a work that covers also the lives of so many others. But yeah, great question. Another question just came in. Um, given your work on Mr. Lodge, what insight does that give you to today's political landscape? Do you think there is a role for a modern day Lodge approach? I mean, it's, you, you save the hardest question here. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I could make an answer up, but I'll just tell you what I really think. 
Um, I, I have a hard enough time making sense out of the past. I certainly have a hard time making sense of the present or the future. Uh, I think what I would say is uh, Lodge is fascinating because he, he really was so influential. And you could see where he made his mark on the Republican Party. You know, when he was first elected to the Senate, there were only 17 Republicans in the Senate. One, seven, 17. I mean, they were basically extinct as a national party. FDR had wiped them out. They'd become really more of a regional party. And about five of those 17 weren't even real Republicans. They were more like, uh, you know, Midwestern prairie progressives, like La Follette progressives, old fashioned ones. And so they were really wiped out. And Lodge, I think more than anybody else, you know, and a few others, Vandenberg from Michigan and others, ultimately reoriented, reoriented the Republican Party from being this isolationist regional party, anti-war, uh, into becoming, you know, embracing who Eisenhower was into a more centrist, more popular, national, uh, foreign, foreign policy, you know, military party, which I think are, are largely qualities that I think traditional Republicans maintain today. And so I think, you know, he made his mark on the party in that sense. He certainly made his mark on the nation, national events, world events, political events, but yet he was a loner who left no successors. Uh, so, you know, I think to today, I mean, there's really hardly any, any overlap between the two parties. I don't really see much of a, a Lodge figure around today. Um, that, you know, it, it, maybe that will, will change one day, uh, but no, I, I, really, I really see Lodge as being almost a unique figure, too much of a loner to leave any successors. As I say, he made his mark on the nation, on the world and on, on politics, but really left no successors. He was just, he was just too different from anybody else. Are there any other questions that out there today? And if uh, not, can you send them in? I, I loved your um, offer. If there were some that they could email you, do you want to repeat that um, email? Oh, I don't mind at all. Yeah, I mean, you can always Google me too, but it's just my, it's my first name underscore last name at yahoo.com. So L-U-K-E underscore N-I-C-H-T-E-R at yahoo.com. And I always hear from a few. Um, it's never a problem. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, uh, I hear uh, uh, this, lately I've heard uh, a lot of readers who had known Lodge um, or had been associated with the family in some way. Um, and I, I often, I think, learn more from you than you learn from me. So I always enjoy hearing from readers. Uh, when might, might we see the LBJ book from you? Oh, uh, the, the, so um, I have it under contract with Yale, same Thank editor, you. same publisher. And uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taking the kind of same approach to that book on 1968, this kind of deep dive in the archive, traveling wherever in the world I have to go. And uh, I got almost all the research done before COVID you know, set on us here in mid-March. And it's the first book on the 68 election to have official cooperation from all four major sides, the Johnson family, uh, the Johnson side, the Humphrey side, the Nixon side, and the Wallace side, George Wallace. And so, you know, if, if all goes to plan, uh, well, it'll be out probably, I would guess, maybe the fall of 2022 during another probably important election. Thank you. Well, I hope you'll come and speak to us on it at that point. <laughs> I would well. love to. And, and there will be a few more surprises in that one, too. I've got some, I've got some new records uh, that will cha really change uh, what we thought about that election, even as much as been already written about it. Well, we welcome you and we hope the next time you come, you're able to come to our house and uh, visit with us in our traditional way. We want to thank absolutely everybody for being with us. And um, Eleanor, do you have anything yeah, to add? We just <laughs> thank the generosity of our patrons and sponsors and the hard work from our committee and our president, Lee Potter. So delightful evening, Thank to, thanks to our- And we'll see you at the next lecture in less than Thank two you, weeks, we hope. And and um, Mr. Nixer, you are more than welcome to come to that lecture as well. We'll send I you an invitation. Okay. Thank, Thank you very much, I appreciate it. Lovely evening. Thank you so much.